Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Alarm, alarm. Welcome to We Have Ways to Make You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, your Second World War podcast for all your Second World War podcast needs. Now, Jim, we're joined by a very, very special guest today. So special to the point you've actually, rather than your usual busking, you've written an introduction. I, well, I just have to because the, the the list of a list of his achievements is is long and and is worth reading out, um, albeit still in very brief form. Just because he is, I have to say, uh, I'm going to embarrass him here. One of the kind of most remarkable people I've ever met. It has to be said. So he's a former U.S. Marine, uh, decorated multiple times for his part in the Vietnam War. He's got the Navy Cross, Silver Cross, Bronze Star to his name. Obviously, none of which are given out lightly, and a Purple Heart to boot. Um, later, he moved into politics and became Secretary of the Navy in the Reagan administration, also Assistant Secretary of Defense for Reserve Affairs, was twice asked by President Obama to be his running mate. Um, wow. And I don't mean jogging, I mean as as in president. Um, he was Democratic Senator for Virginia, um, took a shot at running for the presidency himself as a Democrat candidate in 2015. And he's also taught literature at the U.S. Naval Academy, was fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics, and is now the first ever distinguished fellow of the University of Notre Dame's International Security Center. And as if that's not enough, he's also an Emmy Award-winning journalist, filmmaker, and author. And uh, for my money, his Vietnam novel, Fields of Fire, is one of the best ever written about the conflict. Um, and for those listening who are interested in the Pacific, Philippines, Yamashita and MacArthur, um, and I'm I'm assuming that you all are, um, I can highly, highly recommend his novel, The Emperor's General, which is um, how we first met, because back in my PR days, I did, was lucky enough to do the PR forum, and Jim came over, and we went around the country sort of promoting and around London and whatnot. And The Emperor's General is just a absolutely stupendously good novel so anyway so welcome jim webb um it's uh it's it's great to have you on at long last well it's a it's a pleasure to be with you and um i hope we can um make some news uh, in terms of how the marine corps operates uh <laughs> then and now and those sorts of things and just have a a basic conversation uh uh from you know you and i were talking about earlier that probably focused on the period, uh, interwar period between World War One and then into World War Two for the Marine Corps. But um, I should say this, we are, uh, uh, we are recording on November the 7th. Uh, and on November the 10th, three days from now, is the biggest day of the year for all Marines worldwide, uh, even more so than Veterans Day, which is November 11th, which I, I know in the UK is usually called Armistice Day. Um, but 248 years ago, on November the 10th, 
the United States Marine Corps uh, was formed in a tavern <laughs> in Philadelphia, Tun Tavern. And from that time, literally, you'd be surprised. I, it's one of the things that uh, really stunned me when I was a, a young, you know, late teenager, but a young guy uh, when I started affiliating with the Marine Corps, uh, about how seriously the Marines take their own history. And, you know, the no November the 10th, you'll find um, Marine Corps balls. The Marines hymn will be sung and has a lot of historical uh things that the Marines did early on in, in their uh, their formation. Uh, and you'll find people my age calling up and emailing uh, fellow Marines they've served with or whatever, saying happy birthday. Uh, so this is a great really great that's amazing. talking about us. Oh yeah, it's it's just, it's really something and it's it's just shows, you know, I, I my my theory uh, for for my entire life, I grew up in the military, is that the great military organizations uh, remember their traditions and they force into the people who come in to join them that they are accountable to the things that uh, those who went before them did. And it's a very big part of what the United States Marine Corps is. So if we're even going to discuss principally this period from World War One into to World War II, I, th I think it's, it's useful just to sort of describe a little bit about the character of the Marine Corps and the history that was leading up to to World War one and and then and then thereafter because it, it did change uh, in in its character and, and the size of the obligations that the Marine Corps took I mean what what, what was the original intention in forming them um during the because it's during the Revolutionary War isn't it as it was uh, yeah that was the uh, formation of the Continental Marines yeah I think the, the Marine Corps probably early on was the uh, sort of the uh, ugly uh, adopted stepchild of the Royal Marines. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they've had a, an af affinity with the, with the Royal Marines uh, even to this day. But, uh, you know, they, uh, the early Marine Corps, up until World War I, I think is a, 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 the best way to put it, was basically we were the soldiers of the sea, uh, traditionally, the soldiers of the sea, on the ships and off the ships. They, they became known early on for marksmanship, for high, high levels of discipline with, with uh, their Marines, and also with the importance of small unit leadership. It just wasn't, uh, you know, large divisions marching across the continent formed the, the character and the reputation of the Marine Corps. There were snipers up in the, in the, in the mast of the sailing ships. They were landing parties, which I, I think, you know, having been a rifle platoon commander and then a company commander, fairly small, you know, particularly rifle platoon commander, the importance of, of absolute uh, strength in the leadership of small of the small leadership, but they were the landing party snipers from the mast. Uh, importantly, as this goes on, it's the idea that even in your uniform in the Marine Corps, you are showing respect for the for the um, Marines who've gone before you. Um, if you look at a Marine Corps uniform carefully, even even these days, you'll see for an officer on the on the top of what they call the garrison cap, there's a quatrefoil. The quatrefoil was what the snipers used to wear uh, when they were up on the uh, on the masts of the ship. That's uh, sort of you know sewn in. Uh, they had high collars um, because of the the leather collars that the uh, that the shipboard marines would use when they were up uh, uh, up up in the mast and exposed. I and mean, that's why they started calling the marines leathernecks early early on. Yeah, and there's, there are red stripes on the on the trousers of all marines who reached the rank of, of corporal, which is a, the lowest level of NCO. And the red, they tell you, was uh, the red was to remember the blood that was shed at Chapultepec during the Mexican War, uh, where the marines, you know, one of these landing parties, small landing party sizes moved in and they lost 11 marines killed in, in Chapultepec. They have the eagle, globe, and anchor um, on their on their collars that became the symbol, you know, the globe meaning they go anywhere. The anchor that they were soldiers of the sea and the eagle that they would they would literally fight anywhere. They became known and still are as the few, the proud. The interesting thing though was that uh, up until the time of World War One, they never really took the kinds of casualties that uh, a lot of the other units. There was, uh, you, you know. Of fighting units around the the world and in the in the United States. I just kind of looked this up several years ago because I was trying to figure out, you know, all of these things that we uh, remembered 
the Boxer Rebellion, uh, but there were big uh, in, in China in the Boxer Rebellion, um, et cetera, et cetera. But if you add up all of the the actual battle killed in actions to the point of World War One, there were only three hundred and thirty Marines who had been killed in action in all the in all the countries' wars. Yeah, all the countries' wars. Add them up. Uh, there were very small units, you know, 2,000 uh, total Marines in mo- uh, most of the time. And then in World War One, you really saw a change. And that was uh, in, in 1917 when the United States entered uh, World War One, uh, Due to the, the leadership of uh, John Lejeune, who was one of the great commandants, I think he was commandant for like nine years, and very, very smart about the future of the Marines, that sort of thing, they formed for the first time. Uh, two actual fighting regiments, regimental size, and sent them uh, over into France. Uh, the 5th Marine Regiment, I fought in the 5th Marine Regiment in Vietnam, and the 6th Marine Regiment, <laughs> and my son fought at the 6th Marine Regiment in Iraq. But both very famous uh, regiments, one the 1st Marine Division, the other the 2nd Marine Division. And in in World War One, they, they proved themselves and in large-scale fighting, uh, the, the, the Germans uh, nicknamed the Devil Dogs, uh, the Battle of Belleau Wood, a very famous battle, etc. And a lot of it was discipline, marksmanship, and leadership, the same sort of things that had built you know, the, the Marine Corps on a smaller scale. And when that ended, and so we're going to kind of get into now the, you know, what we were talking about with the develop of amph- development of amphibious warfare and some other things, the... Uh, you know, the, the Marine Corps saw that it could have a role in two things. Uh, one was to be the, the little larger scale uh, fighting unit that could go anywhere uh, on a moment's notice, short even later of nuclear war, in a, in a total homogeneous package, have every, every component of a fighting unit, including air support, close air support, inside the Marine Corps. And looking... After the end of the World War One into the early 1920s, and looking into the Pacific um, rather than to the uh, the amount of time that had been uh, spent in the Atlantic and in in Europe in World War One, they were saying, "What's going to happen?" The Marine Corps and also the, the the Navy leadership too. What what are we going to do here? Um, what's what's the real threat? Because the United States had had opened up uh, a larger scale uh, presence. In the Philippines after the Spanish-American War, right from the word go in the 1920s, it appeared to the U.S. Marine Corps and the U.S. Navy <laughs> that Japan and the Pacific and the Far East was where the biggest threat lay. Well, I think on not necessarily the uh, the, the the figure threat per se, but in terms of naval warfare, and you know, looking at an expansionist Japan, and it was you know. Japan was really on the move after World War One. Uh, actually, well before World War One, uh, after the Meiji Restoration, uh, you know, when when Japan opened up to uh, the outside, it it became the uh, number one power in East Asia. You know, as as opposed to China, the Qing Dynasty had fallen apart, and Russia, which had tried, and the Japans beat them badly in the Russo-Japanese War. So they looked out there. And they said, okay, that the naval uh, leaders, and particularly a, a Marine named Pete Ellis, who I'd like to talk about a little bit at some point here, uh, they, they were saying that the Japanese uh, had, had moved into uh, islands. This sounds a little bit like uh, what we see in the South China Sea now with China, but the Japanese had taken control over islands in the Central Pacific. And, and the Japanese actually had, had, had uh, at one point, wanted to annex Hawaii before uh, we annexed Hawaii in the, in the late 1800s. Uh, so they looked at that and they saw the, the militarizations and they said, okay, how, if we have to fight something in Japan or even in anywhere else in East Asia, how would we uh, get through these Japanese defensive fortifications in the Central Pacific? Uh, and the the Navy uh, put together uh, what was called War Plan Orange, which was a, a, it was a, it was an early just sort of look at how how would we do this? Uh, you know how would how would we as, as a naval service uh, 
get through what the Japanese are doing. And actually, the, the Germans at one point um, had uh, annexed some islands in the, in Micronesia as well. Um, and so they were looking at the Germans, the Japanese, et cetera. And then uh, this war plan, uh, Orange, the Marine Corps started looking at it very carefully. And they uh, started focusing on how, how do you do we're talking blunt amphibious force exercises large scale for the Marine Corps division size, two division size at some points uh, more. Um, how do we do this? How, you know, how, you know, we'd have to do it during the daylight because of the islands and the, you know, the, the topographies and the, the, the tides, et cetera. They have to, but how do we do it? And what is, what are the components that we have to solve? There's a really interesting uh, former Marine um, named Pete Ellis, who is a legend in, inside the, uh, the thinking Marine Corps, uh, even today. He, uh, Pete Ellis was a, he was a Midwest guy. He was from Kansas, uh, but he, he enlisted in the Marine Corps, and he was over in, uh, in the Philippines at one point uh, you know, after the, you know, the, the, the Spanish-American War and the Philippines insurrection. And he was like this really quiet, really smart madman. Brain never stopped working. And uh, there was always, always there was a story about Pete Ellis as a fairly young officer in the, in the Philippines, where they were out in this camp, you know, in the muck and the mire and all the rest of that. And uh, and I'll tell you, you know, I spent a lot of time in that part of uh, Asia, you know, the Guam, Tinian, in the Philippines, etc. And the cockroaches are huge; they're like as big as a mouse. Um, I, I remember being in this little four-room so-called hotel in Tinian when I was doing uh, research thing for the governor of Guam when I was 27 years old. And I'm sitting in my bed and, and the, the door, <laughs> at the bottom of the door, doesn't like close all the way. And these cockroaches started crawling, crawling in under the uh, the door. And I mean, they were big. P. Ellis is sitting there with this, uh, with this guy who'd come in from Washington to, to talk about something or another. And uh, it started, the guy started complaining about the cockroaches on the table. And Pete Ellis just took out his pistol and shot him off the table. <laughs> so, do it so, uh, you know, every brain I know, thinks, that was very cool, you know. But, uh, and then he, he, he started thinking during World War II. He served in, in, in World War II uh, in, in Europe. But even before he deployed, he started looking, as, as did some others, at, at the flawed uh, invasion of Gallipoli and, and why? why. Why did it fail? What were the components that caused it to fail? These were, these were brave soldiers. You know, they went up against a, a, a hard enemy, but why? And Ellis started looking at it. The Marine Corps started breaking down the components of, of Gallipoli. What, what were the things that were wrong in just logistic sense? You know, when you think about it, uh, something I, when I was 17 years old, that I, I started, uh, you know, my, my military uh, participation uh, when I was uh, in college, uh, they would make us, if we were Marine options, they would, they would make us study the Battle of Gallipoli in, 19, in the mid-1960s. Uh, yes, you know, and, and break it down. And the, the fascinating thing was the logistical side, you know, the, the logical logistics of how you do these things. You know, there's an old saying that, uh, you know, amateurs talk strategy and professionals talk logistics. You, you yeah. can get there, but if you don't have the beans, the bullets, and the band-aids, you're going to get killed, you know. And and there, there was just a simple concept like um, reverse combat loading. You know, when the when the when they packed the ships to go to Gallipoli, they didn't. You know, you the last goes first, the first goes last. If you know what I mean. When you when that when you pull pull up to the the landing site, the first stuff off is the first thing they did, but which should have been the last things that you loaded. It just just small things like that. That really um, got the the Marine Corps thinking. The Marine Corps famous uh, for innovators. Um, they'll look at something, a lot of the reasons being because they're small and a lot because people are always trying to do with away with the Marine Corps, uh, which they did after World War II. They tried very hard to do away with the Marine Corps. Harry, Harry Truman was an Army guard guy and served in World War One, and really didn't like the Marine Corps. You know, and the Army Army generals were saying the Marine Corps and a bunch of, you know, foul mouths, sloppy guys uh, who, who think they're like to be soldiers or something. You know how this goes yeah. back and forth. But then Pete Ellis sat down when the, this war plan orange was being uh, discussed in the, in the, in the higher 
levels. He was uh, uh, General Zern really liked him. He was uh, probably in his early 30s by then, maybe mid 30s. But he sat down. And he said, "Okay, we're going to fight Japan." This was 1921 when he laid it out. He said, "We're going to fight them, and this is how we're going to fight them." And he sat down in a in a room in the the headquarters of Marine Corps in in Washington, pulled out all the the tide. You know the, the times of the tides, the, the terrain, et cetera, the, et cetera, et cetera, and laid out what he he called uh, Operation Plan Seven Twelve. And I read that when I was spending time in in uh, in the Mariana Islands after I had left the Marine Corps. You know, trying to figure out how the United States was going to reconfigure it. I went over there and I read Pete Ellis's Op Plan Seven Twelve back in, in the Marine Corps historical section. He'd never been there. He'd never been out in the Central Pacific, but he got it right. The, t- the, t- the tides, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and he became so obsessed with this that the Commandant of the Marine Corps gave him uh, what what we might call, uh, you know, what do you call when the professor gets his year off, you know, a sabbatical. He, uh, you know, they, they, they brought Ellis in. He put on a civilian suit. He gave them a letter of resignation to keep in their desk in, in case anything ever happened to him. And he just headed off to uh, the Central Pacific to do a physical recon of all these islands. And he was, uh, you know, the Japanese, you know, after a while, they'd see this, you know, this American saying he was a businessman or something sitting out in a boat, you know, taking notes on where their, you know, landing sites might be. And the Japanese get really nervous with him. And in January of 1923, he'd been out there a year and a half or so doing this. He was in uh, over in Palau, which is all the way through to the west, where the Battle of Peleliu uh, was. Yeah, was yeah, fought. yeah. It's the yeah. biggest island, isn't yeah. it? Palau of, of the uh, Peleliu Palau is island. A, it's, a, it's a Palawan island. Joe. Peleliu was a, a, the it battle. It is one of the Palawans. Yeah. Yes, it's in Palawan. And it actually, Battle of Peleliu, um, according to Liddell Hart, was the bloodiest single division battle of World War II in any front. The first Marine division uh, went into Peleliu, and you know it was really, really bad. Uh, but, but. Uh, so Pete Ellis is out there in a boat in in Palau, and the Japanese pulled him ashore, and he he somehow died. Nobody knew how he died. the The embassy in Tokyo uh, at the time, American embassy, sent a sailor down to pick up his remains. They they had cremated his remains and came back, and he was like so, so shook he couldn't talk about it. And then you had. The, the great Kanto earthquake, 1923, in Tokyo, you know, it was 140,000 Japanese died in a huge and fast earthquake. And, and this Navy sailor was in a hospital, and he died. So nobody knows how Pete Ellis died or what, or what the Japanese did to this guy when he was down there. That's, that's an amazing story. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's a great it's a great story. I, I you know I heard it first when I was like twenty five years old from a guy named Clay Barrow who was a real military historian over the former uh, first sergeant uh, who was at Naval Institute. So anyway, after all that, wow. the uh, the Marine Corps uh, in in World War II really had taken the lead on amphibious doctrine and particularly on shock amphibious and large 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 size shop, uh, uh, shock amphibia, amphibious operations. And you can just go through these, uh, you know, thinking about these battles that, that these Marines fought head on, daytime. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Guadalcanal landings, which they, they stayed for quite a while. Yeah. Guadalcanal, Bougainville, Tulagi, Tarawa, Kwajalein, Inuitok, Saipan, Tinian, Guam, Peleliu, Iwo Jima, Okinawa. Um, at the end of that, you know, what in, in the 1930s, the entire Marine Corps was 22,000 people. And um, uh, at the end of World War, you know, they obviously expanded in World War II, but uh, at the end of World War II, 20,000 uh, American Marines were dead. Um, 91,000 total casualties. The few, the proud, the Marines, you know, we're going to celebrate it again or remember it again on Friday. Absolutely amazing, fascinating that Ellis is out there doing this this scouting 
scouting around and and comes to this mysterious end (laughs) it's amazing um and is do they send do they send anyone else after that or do they think that he's done enough and the and the i think probably you know my guess to that i've never really thought of in those terms was pete ellis was one guy you know and uh he was you know he was probably really irritating to them since he popped up on these different islands and yeah he's gone you know yeah a lot of other things to do so the marine corps is 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 plugged into this intellectual effort to to try and figure out what's coming next is the army famously that you know there are people like george Patton who are dreaming of having tank armies and all that sort of thing so so to what extent are they able to 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 once they've started to define this doctrine to do exercises or tactical exercises without troops or toots, you know, as they're called here, that sort of thing. Is that what they're doing? Are they running, are they running sort of exercises and stuff? Or have they got any kit at all? How are they, how are they keeping this sort of body of ideas alive in in the interwar period? So they were, they were, they were, uh, they were developing this in the interwar period, sort of from its infancy. You know, we, we do know that the other, the other services and other, armies ended up having amphibious landings and they stumbled through uh, yeah. they stumbled through in different ways uh, you know this was uh, it was a, a fresh concept you know the, the point really here is uh, I'll, I'll say something about other amphibious landings uh, other than the Marine Corps in a minute here but the, 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 the thing that the Marine Corps has been famous for is innovation, amphibious warfare, uh, helicopter doctrine. Yeah. You know, the, the the Marines were the first to come out there with helicopter doctrine during the Korean War. How do you, you know, how you get medevacs in? Uh, you know, how you bring troops in? Um, they developed the doctrine, and then the Army moved it forward. And a lot of that was budgetary for the uh, for the uh, Marine Corps. They had a big fight. First, trying to do away with the Marine Corps in 48-50 period, and and the, the battle of Inshan, the landing at Inshan, saved the the Marine Corps. You know, MacArthur signed away his his uh, total career by betting on the Marine Corps going into Inshan. You know, twelve foot tide levels moving back and forth. These people, uh, they you know they they were World War II veterans, so many of them picked up. You know, in, in six weeks, they, they, they reported back in, got on the ships, landed at Inchon, the br- most brilliant maneuver uh, warfare uh, exercise, I think, in American history. And close air support. The idea that you can have, that you should have fixed wing aircraft and tactical uh, operations that is highly trained with you, which is what the Marine Corps did. In 1957, there was a, a you know, attempt to to downsize the Marine Corps, to have the Marine Corps give up its uh, its uh, fixed-wing aircraft. They had to make a decision between losing their fixed-wing aircraft, which were, there's no other service that, that had fixed-wing aircraft. Uh, you know, if the Army wanted, they had to call up the Air Force. You don't train together, et cetera. But, you know, when, when I was in Vietnam, I could I could call an A-4, 150 meters in front of it, it dropped 250 bucks. Uh, but they had to trade off, and they traded off. They kept their fixed wing, and the army got the air mobile doctrine. Um, right. But the doctrine had had first begun with uh, the experiments that that the Marine Corps had done, and so that's what was going on uh, before World War II. Now, it, it, and on the other hand, the largest amphibious invasion of World War II, Sicily. <laughs> People said, "I think it was Normandy." Yeah. And, uh, but you know, and you had Sicily, you had Normandy. Those were not Marine Corps operations, and the army, our army, stumbled learning at the beginning of the World War II on, on amphibious doctrine. If you look at the North African invasions, they they decided they wanted to do that night so that the enemy couldn't see them, and they lost a lot of soldiers stepping off of amphibious uh, craft with all their gear on, and uh, the the amphibious craft wasn't where it should be, and they just yeah, yeah. Went, hit a sandbar or whatever off the front and. Or just completely gone awry. I mean, because because you know, navigating a, a Higgins boat or something is 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 not particularly easy, because you know it's very easy to drift because you haven't got the heel keel and all that kind of stuff, and it's so so you know you really need this, that visual eyes on on the target of where you're trying to land, don't you? The Marine Corps was not perfect, believe me, on this stuff. I mean, it's. Uh, if you studied the Battle of Tarawa, when the Marines hit Tarawa, and I've been on Tarawa, I visited Tarawa, uh, with when uh, yeah, the great thing about being a writer, people say, "Why you're, you're in government? Why do you want to write?" I say, "Because when you're a writer, you can get people to pay you to indulge your curiosities." 
<laughs> so I've been to Tarawa. <laughs> but uh, Tarawa, they did uh, the, the recon element for the landing, recon the raw island, the very small islands. And so when, when they came in on their uh, their amphibious landing in Tarawa, they were, you know, we would talk about the Higgins boat, James, you know, that high pointed where they couldn't move forward. And the, and the Marines... Um, you know, I lost a lot of people getting to the shore. I know when, when my son, who, as I said, later became a Marine, when he went and saw Savior Private Ryan and they had the, uh, the filmography there on D-Day, um, I, you know, he goes, man, well, you know, you got to see this. And I went and saw it with him. I went back and pulled the history books out. And I, I said, you know, what you just saw was Tarawa. It wasn't Omaha Beach. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 casual, the number of casualties on, on Omaha Beach were about the same as they were on Tarawa with, with just that little second Marine Division. And the, uh, but that was Tarawa was 72, 72 hours of slaughter. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Just go back to to Gallipoli, though. Um, so the sort of combat loading that that that's one lesson. Was there kind of anything else? I mean, you know, because the Higgins boat does, for example, doesn't get get trialed until May nineteen forty one. There's no program of assault craft until the kind of war begins, and really, the kind of the big bulk of assault craft building in in World War Two happens between. You know, from April 1942 until May 1943, then there's a kind of another. Then they sort of keep up the levels until the end of the war. But that's the big surge of assault craft building, and that's when you get your kind of landing ships and landing craft tanks and all this kind of stuff. In the kind of you know, when they're thinking about it between the wars, you know, they're they're assuming uh, you know in any fight against uh, against the Japan, you're going to have to do this kind of island stuff. So how are they going to land? I mean, what's what's the thinking? Well, about the uh, for, first of all, the size of the Marine Corps during the 1930s was back down to about 22,000 Marines total. The systems, the weapon systems, the landing systems that you're talking about, really, uh, had, uh, a, a lot of that had been pioneered. The, the Marine Corps had a, an area in, I think it was at Camp Pendleton, off of Camp Pendleton, where they were really experimenting with you know, amphibious landings, amphibious assault, what do, you, what do you need, and these sorts of things. But, you know, with respect to uh, something like Gallipoli, I would I would think that one of the things that they pulled from this is is the need to, to have for lack of a term, bombardment, you know, before you land, you need to, you need to uh, have a high level of uh, suppressive uh, fire, uh, yeah, in naval guns and, you know, and like in, in World War II, they had uh, a lot of tanks that would come in at the same time as the, uh, as the landing uh, 
uh, craft went in. Saipan was a really good example of that. Battle of Saipan. They still, I think, there is still a marine tank in the in the water, <laughs> just on the other side of the reef, in front of the uh, landing. Uh, landing place where the breach landed on Saipan in 1944. Uh, but getting that kind of really heavy fire, you know. But kind of World War II relics around the Pacific is, uh, I mean, it's quite a thing, isn't it? I mean, I remember being on Guadalcanal and seeing they've got a, you know, you can still see the remnants of sort of uh, Japanese assault craft on the beaches. You know, there's not much left now. And then then you sort of go into a little bit of, sort of jungle clearing and there's a sort of whole mass of collected bits of aircraft and lightnings. And I spent a good bit of time, as, as I mentioned before, in the in the Mariana Islands. After wow. I left the Marine Corps, I went, well, I was, I'd, I'd written a piece uh, on the need to uh, re, reshape our uh, our military basing system in Pacific for and to move into what would be called strategically an interior position along uh, Guam and the Mariana Islands, Northern Marianas, which ironically they're doing now. Finally, right? Um, it's a, to some extent they're doing the move of the Marines into into Guam and, and Tinian was a was a great place. Oh, back, you know, um, I knew they're back on back. On, they're, they're, they're on Guam at the moment, aren't they? But 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 are they? So the U.S. Marines are currently moving back into the Pacific. They're, they're moving from in that area. They're moving from you know they've been in Okinawa. The Third Marine Division has been in Okinawa for a long time, um, and they they've been uh, as a as a sort of as a not simply because of the Japanese defense, but as a a, a place where they can as a as a maneuver place where they can get into any of uh, these other areas if they have to go quickly and on on board ship, you know, out of uh, the Okinawa thing. But they, I think that you know, people of Okinawa have been very patient um, for. Uh, a lot of years, you know, with the, the size of the American basing system, a lot of it works to their um, uh, to their benefit economically and and otherwise on on, on Okinawa. But it's a it's a lot. So they they want to downsize the uh, they want us to downsize our our uh, footprint in Okinawa, and you know the rest of uh, uh, of, of Japan isn't. Exactly thrilled about having another base, you know, in their, uh, you know, in their uh, areas. You know, the, Japan's a uh, uh, highly uh, uh, densely populated in the areas where they're, you know, because they got a mountain spine of mountains right through the uh, middle of the islands there. But so they're moving moving Marines from there down into Guam. I had recommended that they put uh, like a regiment out there on Tinian. There's nothing on Tinian. But the point is when you're you know talking about the World War II relics, um, Saipan, the, the island of Saipan, um, they had done after after, after uh, the battle was over and, and the war was over, uh, they did one EOD sweep of the northern part of Saipan, and that was it. And uh, they around in '72, I think they finally lifted the the barriers. I the 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 the, the word was that there was a CIA training base for uh, nationalist Chinese uh, special force types. And that's I can't confirm that 100, percent but there were some activities up there, but not much. Um, but when they opened that up in 1972, and I was I was over there '73, '74, and I got the you know the the big aerial maps and 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 put the data on day by day the, the Battle of Saipan Second Marine Division on one side Fourth Marine Division on the other side and that uh, Army National Guard division in the middle and and marked it all out and went out there and visited and I found fighting positions that were still in place boot heels really uh, you know K rations caves I have wow. in my uh, so when was this, Jim? What, what year was this? This was seventy four when I did the the wow. walkthrough on my own, and yeah, and up in the north, you know, when uh, the the way that the, the Japanese were fighting, uh, you know, they fought to the last person. They they believed they had stained their family if they surrendered, you know. So uh, uh, and they were in these the, the Marines were digging them out of, of caves in the northern part of the island when they first started this this move for it. Lost a lot of military, thirty six hundred. Uh, uh, Americans dead on just in that little island, a thirty square mile island. But uh, up in the north, they just stopped going into the caves. They just blew them shut, you know, uh, blow them shut, or, or put a flamethrower in there, try to get them out. And some of these caves started opening up. 
uh, in the early 70s. And they were allowing Japanese uh, to go in, you know, to try to recover bones to give them a proper Shinto uh, burial and that sort of thing. But I found uh, one cave. I, I was following uh, the battles where I knew that the Marine tanks could only go so far and then they would lose their topography. Um, and I was following that and I got in this little gully and I said, you know, <laughs> the Japanese were going to put positions up up this gully with a little stream in there going up top of this hill. Uh, that's where they put them because they would think the Marines were going to come down down that gully toward the, the north of the thing. And I got up there and there was two fighting positions right up there in, inside rice bottles, that sort of thing. And then there was a big cave, like a three-room cave uh, behind it. And I got in there. There were <laughs> boots in there. I picked one up. I dropped it and it just who fell apart. I brought back stuff I've got. I'll show you if you ever get to my writing office here. You know, I've got that bottles and um, sulfur morphine vials out of there, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was like, wow, you know, it's like nobody had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like just sort of frozen in time. 45. Yeah, at that time, yeah. So. God, well, and, and obviously that's just after you've come back from Vietnam. So, you know, you've got <laughs> lots of combat experience yourself. So clearly you're able to bring that experience to bear in in what you're looking at and you're, you're able to sort of context. It's kind of interpreted, I suppose. It's if. If you've been through the type of war that we fought, or I was in Vietnam, uh, and then you go to a place like Saipan, there's a lot of similarities, uh, tactical similarities. Although our, 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 the area that I fought in was also a heavily built up population. Anyway, but yeah, so I mean, you could walk in there and knowing, you know, having having experienced this, you can just feel it, feel where these things were. And of course, I'm doing this all my life too in terms of military histories. Jim, one thing is it's why is it that the US Marine Corps never never sees action in, in Europe? Is it's is that is that just because the Pacific campaign is a is a US Navy dominated campaign? I mean and, and the US Marine Corps part of the US Navy. I mean You know, there used to, there used to be a joke. Uh, when I was waiting, uh, I was in the Naval Academy, and I was waiting to, to go to Vietnam. I knew I was gonna go. But the the old there's a saying in in the Marine Corps we train to fight fight in Europe, and we die in Asia. <laughs> Dude, we did fight in World War One there, but uh, I think that you know, I, when I was uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for three years, I had NATO was one of my uh, NATO Europe mobilization uh, to, to evaluate our mo- our mobilizations, not in terms of the, the the tactics that was the the uniform side, but in terms of the resources. Can they do it, et cetera, et cetera? And I worked a lot with uh, our, our NATO allies, particularly the German army. I spent a lot of time with. I also actually also got to go on, uh, there was an operation called Operation Lionheart. It's either 84 or 85. It was the first time that they replicated uh, the, in, the, the D-Day sort of invasion from the UK into uh, the, the landmass of uh, Europe and, and went on a, a NATO operation. I went with them on that and observed that. It's 85 or 86, yeah. And, and it was a full-scale um, uh, you know, British Army on the Rhine mobilization and everything into, in, into, into Europe. The full shebang. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I went with them on that. I went with the Brits over yeah. as, an, as an observer when I was Assistant Secretary of Defense. Yeah. Um, but you know the the style of warfare in in uh, in NATO Europe with the with the Soviets was much better matched by the United States Army and the mobility and the, the uh, we could go. I mean, with, with the Marine Corps, they could go. The thing that Brins always have been able to do with they can go on twenty four hours notice uh, anywhere and fight anybody. Yeah. Under, under anything less than nuclear. Uh, and that's the whole thing about I was talking about with close air support and this sort of, they had a whole homogeneous package that this most recent former commandant has seriously damaged. And I hope this new commandant can, can get them back on that because that's that's always been the value of the Marine Corps. Well, the speed of maneuver and the speed of, of, of being able to, that, that kind of versatility. Being and able to and the, the homogeneity of the, the, the entire uh, the, the entire tactical need. It's sort of like a deep battle concept that you have everything everything all in one package together. You can go, yeah, you can go, you know, and you're ready to go. And, you know, with the, with the army, traditionally the army has to, to coordinate for like close air with, with air force. They don't train together. They haven't trained together, but it's all there in, in the Marine Corps. Um, you know, my dad was in the air force uh, and uh, 
he was a bomber pilot in World War II, flew in the Berlin airlift, uh, et, et cetera. And when he found out I wanted to go in the Marine Corps, he just he just couldn't stand the thought that I was going to do this, you know. And he would say, "Why? Why there? Why is there even a Marine Corps?" <laughs> and, and, and I would go, why is there an Air Force? The Marine Corps has an Air Force. The Army has an Air Force. The Navy has an Air Force. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I went and, uh, and then my brother went. My brother was a Huey pilot. And by then it was, I got my two Marines here. You know, I got my infantry guy here. I got my pilot here. You know, so everything was like, okay, Dad. You know, and by the way, we both finally joined the military. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting though uh, in this country i think there is a there is a perception that the marine corps fought the war in the pacific and that the the u.s army were not involved at all is it, wouldn't you say would you agree with that james i mean yeah i think so to a certain extent and um yes it's always seen that sort of u.s army as a kind of europe thing john mcmanus always says it, he, you know he, he was like to point out that the the u.s army had more men deployed than the uh, the marine corps by, by quite a substantial margin. margin the well, they had, far, the, they had far more far more men to deploy around the world than the Marine well, Corps. Well, of course, that, that, I, you know, uh, uh, that's the key point, isn't it? Is, uh, the Marine Corps is a small thing. Or, or fight each other over this, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's I, I want credit where credit's due. And, and I'm, I, uh, uh, there are a lot of things that, as James Yildo, the way that uh, uh, I tried to honestly examine Douglas MacArthur and give him his ups and his downs and that sort of thing. You know, for a while, for all of the negatives that, that uh, people like to throw at MacArthur, I think you know his campaign uh, from Australia all the way up into the Philippines saved a lot of lives. Yeah. It's very smart the way that he was able to use his people and, uh, and you know it, you know the, the the concept of you know, leaving them starving on the vine. You don't have to. He was. It's a lot of landmass uh, with with the way that MacArthur brought his his people up. Whereas in the Marine Corps, it was, you got to blow a hole right through here. So for for naval predominance, you've got to get all these islands. We, they probably didn't have to invade Peleliu, but MacArthur made them do that. <laughs> that was MacArthur, you know. And and that's the you know the 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 word was MacArthur said he wanted that flank covered when he when he reinvaded the Philippines, but. Uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for, you know, I'm a ground guy, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of respect for, you know, infantry folks that, you know, are, are in the army too. Well, how can one not when you look at all the kind of, all the campaigns that were fought in, in, in the Second World War and not least in the Pacific as well. But, but, but as you point out, I mean, the U.S. Marine Corps is a much smaller entity um, and still has, takes on an incredible weight of the combat in the Pacific. You know, you think of all those island campaigns. And it did. And starting out of Guadalcanal, of course, you know, which was, you know, I know it's well, finished you know, the by Marine the Corps, army. The Marine Corps is very, you know, very proud of the fact that they're the first to fight. And they go the hardest places. And you can look in Vietnam. You know, our casualty rate in Vietnam was, you know, uh, very high, much higher than the other services. The rate was much higher. We sent 400,000 uh, Marines into Vietnam. We had 103,000 killed or wounded. We had more total casualties than in World War II, although there were more more killed in World War II. You know, we had 14,490 Marines we lost in, in, in Vietnam. Uh, but we went to one hundred and three thousand in in one hundred and three thousand. Um, here's the here's the official here's the official Marine Corps history. One hundred and three thousand killed or wounded, and uh, you know it's it was it's, it's this whole the small unit concept in the first division. Uh, the Marine Corps had the third division was up along the the DMZ most of the time. They had very conventional battles and big battles. Um, in the first division, we fought populated areas, mountain areas, etc. cetera, uh, but it was small unit contacts constantly. Um, and we lost in Quangnam province, of so the five provinces where the Marine Corps fought, we, fought, we, we lost a plurality of the kill in, in Quangnam province. Uh, uh, 7,000 uh, died in Quangnam province. Uh, you know, I had a, a great experience last year bringing, when this Notre Dame program, bringing the, uh, the students on the in the Notre Dame's International Security Center into Vietnam. We did uh, Hanoi, we did a, a, a 
windshield tour of a battle that I was in, or my, my regiment was in, in May of 1969, uh, eight-day battle. Uh, I took them out there, and you know, and then they went down to Saigon. But taking them out there and showing them the, you know, the terrain, we were all the way up against Laos, uh, or 12 miles from Laos, where where we were. Uh, so yeah, but the Marines, the Marines, have always said we we go we'll go do the hard things. I mean. And but you look at uh, look at uh, Iraq. Um, everybody pulled a, pulled a load in Iraq. Uh, my son was in Ramadi, and, you know, during some bad fighting there. But a lot of those army units they were being rotated in uh, too quickly. They weren't given enough time. I, I tried to get legislation passed on this when I was in the in the Senate, where traditionally you have this may be a little bit off topic, but to, you know traditionally you have uh, a two to one ratio when you're sending people sending people units into combat for for every year you're there you get two years back to replenish to retrain you know get your brain straight and the army had pulled that down to uh like 15 months you'd be over there a year and then uh you know you know that you went up to, to 15 months you had like Less time at home than you were having when they were sending uh, sending them into uh, the Baghdad area. They really paid a hard price, heavy price. Wow, emotionally heavy price, long term. Yeah, I'm I sure. Think. Well, Jim, we started off having a, a conversation about the U.S. Marine Corps in the interwar years. <laughs> Ended up with a pretty a pretty broad brush sweep of, of yeah, 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 exactly. But but it's been fascinating. I mean, thank you so much for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Um, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, we've been talking to um, indefatigable Jim Webb with his uh, your CV alone, Jim. I'm, I'm going to tell people to go, go back to the start of the podcast and listen, listen once again to that because we, we talked to an awful lot of people on this podcast, but you're very much the real deal. And thank you for joining us. Well, I'm, I'm, I appreciate I appreciate it. I'm sorry if I took too much time myself. Oh. I'll be interested oh, no, no, no. in this discussion. No, we want to hear it from you. <laughs> That's the whole point. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Jim, yep. thanks for coming on. Um, see you next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.